we're on the hunt for Planet Nine. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. On the outer edges of our solar system, beyond the orbit of Neptune, objects cluster in weird ways. This clustering led some scientists to search for something that could be acting as a gravitational shepherd, moving and modifying their orbits. That something could be Planet Nine, a hypothetical planet at the edge of our solar system that could be tugging and clustering these far-out objects. So far, scientists only have mathematical evidence to support the existence of Planet Nine, but work continues hunting this elusive object in our solar system. We'll talk with UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell about this mathematical discovery and the controversy in the scientific community about its existence. Then, NASASpaceflight.com assistant managing editor Chris Gebhardt is here to discuss the efforts to spot this thing using optical telescopes and how the discovery of planets around other stars in the universe can help us better understand where Planet Nine might live. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. Researchers at Caltech have found mathematical evidence of a Planet Nine, a theoretical planet that could be tugging on objects in the far edges of our solar system. That evidence doesn't mean scientists have discovered a new planet. Efforts to see this thing have fallen short. But what does the evidence show? And is there consensus in the scientific community that there is a planet hanging out in the far reaches of our solar system? To talk more about Planet Nine and the controversy surrounding it are UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. Josh Caldwell kicks off the conversation. It's actually uh, sort of similar lines of evidence for what was used to uh, initiate the hunt for the original Planet Nine, Pluto, which is some oddities in the orbits of other planets. And in this case, it's the orbits of other objects in what's... Uh, called the Kuiper Belt, or this disk of leftover materials in the outer solar system from the formation of the solar system. And uh, observers noticed that some of those objects had orbits that were kind of clustered in one direction in the skies. They're very elongated, egg-shaped orbits, and all the eggs were kind of pointing in a similar direction. And that kind of thing isn't what you would expect to happen uh, just through sort of random natural processes. And so it suggests that there's something kind of shepherding them. And uh, the way to shepherd planets is by using gravity. And so some big gravitational thing could be responsible for that. So that's sort of the, the genesis for the idea of the, that distant object. Jim, you uh, expressed some skepticism in <laughs> in these findings. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, that... that... That certainly is suggestive. It's interesting, but it's certainly not uh, uh, any kind of smoking gun piece of evidence for the existence of such a thing. Our our understanding of the the motions of these distant objects is is like I said, scant. So we we only have a handful of objects that we're looking at. It could just be small number statistics, right? So if you're only looking at a handful of things, there's not that small a chance that they just happen to you know generally lie in the same part of the sky. So. Uh, it's it's certainly tantalizing, but it's 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 in no way you know there's definitely a planet nine kind of a thing. By the way, I'm calling it Planet fourteen because I like dwarf planets as planets. But go ahead. Uh, Josh mentioned that this is kind of similar to how the original Planet Nine Pluto was discovered. Can we talk a little about? Uh, are there similarities to to what's going on with uh, with this theoretical planet and and how we discovered Pluto? 
Well, there were some oddities noticed in the orbit of Neptune, I believe, that uh, caused people to imagine that there was another planet out there uh, that was changing its motion compared to what was observed and what would be predicted from all the known planets at that time. Turns out Pluto isn't the explanation for those oddities, but that's why uh, Percival Lowell's you know, looking out there and found, or Clyde Tombaugh rather, was looking out there and find it. And um, in this case, uh, it's not the, the main inner planets that are having funny orbits as these trans-Neptunian objects in the Kuiper belt. Um, and so the, the orientations of their orbits, in the case for, for the, the perturbations to Pluto, I'm sorry, the perturbations to Neptune, it was the sort of the, the path that Neptune was following itself and its orbital speed that was a little bit off from calculations. In the case now, we're talking about it's the observation of whole orbits of several objects in the outer solar system on the order of a dozen or so objects, and I think there have been even more uh, since the original paper was published, that have a preferential orientation. And one of the funny things about gravity is you just got two objects, it's super simple. Well, it's relatively simple. <laughs> as soon as you add a third object in there, it goes crazy. And so um, the, the dynamics of having a large object out there orbiting the sun and then all of these other objects moving around can give you certain resonances and uh, clusterings of objects in certain locations. And we see these kinds of things in a very qualitative sense throughout the solar system, like in the asteroid belt, there are clumps of asteroids in certain locations. Then there are other locations, there's no asteroids. And it's all because of the gravitational sort of shepherding or steering uh, at the, the sort of coordinated action between the sun and some bigger other object out there like Jupiter, or in this case, the putative planet nine. I, I like to call it Egotron. Uh, whatever you want to call it, some big object out there uh, pushing things around. Mm-hmm. Addy, um, Jim expressed some uh, criticism of, of this finding. Um, what would it take? What kind of, I mean, this is just all on, on paper, right? This is, this is math that is, you know, suggesting this object might be there. What would it take for scientists like, like Jim uh, to, to be convinced that there actually is something out there? Sure. I mean, I think that... Convince me, Eddie. <laughs> I mean, I think Jim's uh, skepticism is healthy. It reflects a lot of the community's skepticism. Um, yeah, one of the one of the challenging things is, is for all of these objects that are so far out is how do we directly observe them? And this is a challenge we have with exoplanets and things in our own uh, solar system. It's just that when things are really far away, you, it's really hard to directly observe them. So you have to look for things like gravitational interactions. Um I mean, I think that a more direct observation of uh, something being specifically perturbed by this thing's orbit, or obviously a direct observation of the object would be wonderful. Um, It's supposed, I think a lot of the skepticism comes just from the fact that it's supposedly really large, um, but we have, but so it it should be easier to detect, but we haven't been able to detect it. Um, And so I think that uh, some more direct observation of it would would definitely reduce the amount of skepticism uh, that people <laughs> feel. And I just have to say, as as physicist, I'm 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 very jealous that you all get to use the term perturbed um, in daily conversation. <laughs> so uh... <laughs> yeah, and most of the time it's about science. Yeah. <laughs> Following on what Addie was saying about it being large but unseen, 
another aspect of it that's unusual is having such a large planet or such a large object so far away from the sun. So in the outer reaches of the solar system, there's less and less stuff when the solar system is forming. Orbits take longer, so it took a longer time for things to stick together, so it's harder to build a big object. So the conventional wisdom is you make big planets close to the sun. Now you're talking about something that's big, you know, 10 times maybe the sun. I can't remember the, 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 the planet nine dimensions, but it's many times larger than the Earth, at, at, at least, out there. How do you form something like that out there? Probably you didn't. You probably have to form it in close to the sun, where you've got a lot more material and things are happening a lot faster. And then you got to get it out there. Um, and so that's that's another um, sort of challenge for the theoreticians and modelers to, to tackle. It has a very interesting um hypothesized orbit, right? I mean, this is not a, 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 a usual orbit for something that would be in our solar system, right? Oh, I was going to say the kind of orbit they, that they think it must have would require it not only to be kicked out during the early days of the solar system, but then also to kind of be stabilized out there by some other effect, like a, a passing nearby star or something. There has to be, you know, if it was just kicked out, then it would occasionally come right back in. Uh, and that would be, we would know if that were happening uh, on any regular basis. Um, that certainly isn't. So if it's out there, it's it's not only out there, but it's staying out there on some large orbit that keeps it far away from the sun at all times. And that required the, you know, uh, another third party, another star. Uh, we have recently seen situations like this in, in other exoplanetary systems. So it's it's not that that's impossible. It's just not that easy. It's it's a, It's an unlikely event. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, very, very similar to what Jim was saying. Uh, it's it's hard to um, get something out there, but then also just the inclination that it's on. So the fact that not only is it not it's, is it far out, but it's not in the same disk as the rest of the planets in the solar system. Um, to get that kind of sort of perturbation, that that off uh, axis um, orbit, you have to have it being kicked out and then, like Jim said, perturbed again. So, so changed from something else nearby. Um, and, and there's lots of hypotheses and ways to, to do that. We can look at sort of other stars in our neighborhood and think if any of them were flying by at sort of the right time to maybe uh, to change the stars, the planet's orbit. We know that a lot of things were kicked out of the solar system early on. So this is where uh, the Oort cloud comets that we occasionally see coming in as new comets um, were originally formed probably much closer to the sun, got kicked out when the planets formed. So that's, again, these one of the consequences of the sometimes complicated or surprising interactions you can have with, between lots of gravitating objects. You can kick a big planet out just as easily as a small planet. Um, and uh, so those comets go out there, but as Jim said, then they fall right back down into the inner solar system and they give us a nice show. Sometimes they'll hit something. Uh, it's very exciting. Um, if a big planet were coming back in, then its gravity would scramble uh, the orbits of things here more than like a little comet does. And so we know that that hasn't been happening. So it, you got to kick it out. There's got to be this two-step process to then kick it out on a very elongated orbit and then do something that kind of circularizes the orbit. So it's not as needle-like, it's a little bit more egg-shaped. Um, but we know that those sorts of things happen because that far from the sun, we're talking hundreds or thousands of times further from the sun than the earth is, 
even forces like due to the the disk of the Milky Way galaxy um, warps and stretches and tugs on things out there, as well as passing stars. Some of these Oort cloud comets are a quarter of the way to the distance of the nearest star. I'm going to ask this final question, knowing the full risk that I may perturb Jim, but let us just imagine for a moment that this planet is real and it does exist. What would what would the discovery of a planet like this mean for planetary sciences and our understanding of the solar system? I think um, I think one of the things that it tells us is that our our solar system, which for so long we thought was sort of this not unchanging, but like relatively static thing. And it was sort of the only example we had for a long time of what a solar, what a planetary system looked like. And we sort of had this classical idea of small things in the inside, bigger thing than the bigger planets a little bit further out, and then some other really small stuff. Um, But as we've been discovering more and more exoplanets, we've been discovering more and more diversity in terms of what planetary systems can look like. Um, And it's made us go back and look more at our solar system. And we're starting to discover all these objects out in this trans-Neptunian region. And this tells us that our solar system is actually way different than we sort of thought it was for a long time. And um, that there's still a lot more to learn about what it looks like now and what that tells us about how it changed in the past. So there's all this idea now of not that the planets necessarily formed right where they were, but as we mentioned, have moved around throughout the history of the solar system. And that drastically changes how we understand what a, a planetary system can look like, but also things like habitability, like how long an Earth might be able to be in a habitable orbit around a star. And maybe you can get things moving around and, and putting things in habitable places when we didn't expect maybe they could have before. So it really, I mean, it, some, in some ways it makes things way worse because it's a much more chaotic place, but in some things, it in some ways it gives us new ideas about how things can form and change. So and you can, you can take your half empty or half full glass, I think with that. That was UCF scientists, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. They also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Be sure to check it out wherever you get this podcast or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. Still to come, the efforts to see Planet Nine. That's ahead when Are We There Yet continues. You're listening to Are We There Yet? on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Planet Nine exists only on paper, in the mathematical equations of researchers, but the search to see Planet Nine is on. That search won't be easy. To talk more about the efforts to spot this elusive theoretical planet is Chris Gebhardt. He's the assistant managing editor at nasaspaceflight.com. We begin our conversation talking about those efforts to confirm the existence of Planet Nine. Yeah, uh, the, real, the only real way to do that is to see it um, and and to find it. And by seeing it, we mean, uh, or scientists mean, a couple of different things. There's the easiest way, um, usually, which we, or the simplest way, I should say, which is to train our optical telescopes um, and the direction that we think it's in 
in the orbit we think it's in and try to see it. And the way we do that is basically you focus on an area of the sky and you lock your telescope on that so that the telescope is rotating at the same velocity that Earth is rotating. So you get a nice stable image and you image that area of the sky multiple times over months and weeks and years. And what you're doing is you're looking for one of those little tiny pinpoints of light to move. And if it moves, it's not a star. It's, a, it's something in the outer reaches of the solar system. What orbit is it in? Does it match the characteristics for what I'm looking for for planet nine? Because the chance is always there that as you're looking for planet nine, you're going to find something else that isn't that planet, but another little object out there in the outer reaches of the solar system. Now, unfortunately, the thing that makes this really hard is this planet is small. Um, it would only be about five times the mass of Earth, about um, two to four times Earth's radius. So it's small. It's not a Jupiter or a Saturn or something like that. Um, and because it's small and because it's really, really, really far out there, uh, the current estimates is that it would have an average orbital distance of 400 to 500 times the distance of the sun than Earth is. So it's really far out there. And because it's really far out there, it's moving really slow based on the mathematical predictions and some telescopes that we've used to search for the other parts of its orbit already and confirmed it's not there. So if it exists, it's got to be out at its farthest point from the sun. And that means it's moving even slower. And to complicate it even more, um, the optical telescopes we have to aim at this particular area are also looking at the background of our own galaxy, the dense clusters of stars and gases that on a really dark night you can look up and you can see that band of the Milky Way. And of course, that's what we that's where we have to aim the telescopes to search for. So finding it optically is gonna be difficult and has already proved challenging. Um, mainly because its size and distance mean relatively few telescopes are powerful enough to search for it in that regard. So it, it's a challenge to try to find this thing. Um, so it's not surprising that entering the fifth year of the teams really searching for it based on the new orbital calculations um, that have really been done thanks to Mike Brown and, um, and Constantine Patinia, it's, it's just gonna take some time, mm -hmm. unfortunately. <laughs> so it's it's small, it's far away. It has this, mm -hmm. you know, very very far orbit. Um you pointed out it doesn't seem like this go is going to be easy, a needle in a haystack kind of thing. Um I mean, are scientists optimistic that they can find it this way using optical telescopes? Uh, so yes and no. Um, it is entirely possible that optical telescopes like the Subaru telescope that is the primary one being used are just not going to be powerful enough to see it because it it's it's way far out there its reflectivity isn't that high because the way we see it is right light travels outward from the sun hits it and then bounces back to us and if its reflectivity is relatively low that could potentially put it below the detectable threshold of these telescopes and to put it into perspective right Pluto, which was very hard to find, right, uh, almost 100 years ago now, this object that we're searching for is almost 550 times fainter than Pluto. Oh, wow. So it's very dim. Um, so yes, it's possible that optical telescopes will not be able to see this. Now, thankfully, 
optical telescopes are not the only way we can search for it. We can search for it in ultraviolet and infrared because one thing that is certain if it does exist is that it's still radiating heat from its formation. So we should be able to find a heat signature. And scientists, going back to your, the core of your question, are optimistic overall that if it exists, we'll be able to find it because this isn't a problem that NASA faced with its mission like the Parker Solar Probe, the one that's going into the, the sun's outer atmosphere where they've wanted to do that mission for decades, but they literally had to wait for the technology to develop to the point to do it. This isn't that. All the technology we need to find it, if it exists, exists. So it is something we can find. And if we can't find it through optical telescopes, this is actually something that the upcoming James Webb Space Telescope, which doesn't see in the optical range, um, is very powerful enough that could aid in the search for it as well. You wrote about some advances in technology and our understanding of, of the universe, especially with exoplanets. Um, you know, we're kind of in this golden age of, of exoplanet research right now. Um, how are scientists leveraging what they know about exoplanets, um, you know, outside of our solar system to kind of help with the hunt for this elusive planet that might be in our solar system. Yeah, so it seems so counterintuitive to say, well, let's look hundreds of light years away at what's happening in other star systems, some of which are much younger and much older than our star system. Uh, it, it seems really counterintuitive that we would want to do that because why would you look farther away for something that's closer to you? Um, and, and while it's true, we're not using exoplanets to confirm that planet nine exists, we can look at other solar systems as models for our own. And one of them in particular, which has a name that just rolls right off the tongue. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, Brendan, but I really like the sound of solar system HD 106906. Um, great name. I love but, it. <laughs> great name. Great name. But yes, um, but this is a solar system that's about uh, 330 light years away from us. It's it's much younger than us. In fact, it's still forming. Um, but the more we've looked at it, the more curious it became because it had something in the data that looked like it might be an exoplanet. Very, very, very far away from its star. Planet nine is between 400 and 500 astronomical units from our sun. And this exoplanet is 730 astronomical units from its star. Very similar. This exoplanet takes about 15,000 years to orbit its star. Planet 9's um, anticipated orbit or predicted orbit is between 10 and 20,000 years, average of which is 15. This exoplanet in this system that Hubble observed is tilted 21 degrees to the overall plane of the solar system. Planet 9 is predicted to have an inclination of 20 degrees to the plane of our solar system. You start seeing a lot of similarities here when you look at this planet, and this was not lost on the scientists when they discovered it. But what's really cool about it is that the basic theory, um, and, and this comes from really, really detailed observations that, that took 14 years of data, but the cool thing about it is that the, the primary driving mechanism for how it got so far out there is that it formed much closer to its parent star. And basically, it got slowed down by the dust and everything as it was forming because the solar system is very young. And it basically got too close to its star, whiplashed around it and got flung out to the location that it is today. And what this proves is that early, early solar system formation of planetary bodies that get ejected to great distances is not just theoretical, 
it's possible because now we're looking at one in another solar system and we're looking at it happening. And that is one of the leading theories for planet nine's formation that it formed with the other eight. Um, sorry, Pluto, but um, it, that it formed with the other eight. And as the other eight grew and jostled around and moved around to where they are now, this other one just sort of lost its gravitationally stable spot and got flung out to where it is now in the solar system. So finding another solar system 336 light years away that matches that proves that it's not just true in theory, it can happen. So that was really good. And we also saw in this data from Hubble that it's on this really elongated or elliptical orbit. That is exactly the type of orbit that planet nine is predicted to be on, an elliptical orbit. And this exoplanet that Hubble looked at Basically, it comes close enough to its planet that if you think of like all those outer outer planetesimals or little bodies like Pluto and the object that New Horizons flew by a couple of years ago, even further out beyond Pluto, there's a disk of that type of material around this exostar uh, that this exoplanet, so it's keeping part of it very close to the parent star and it's elongating this other side of it. And this sounds weird. Why are you talking about that, Chris? Because if we come back closer to our solar system to planet nine, the mathematical way, as, as your previous guest, Brendan, were talking about that we know planet or we, that we think would prove planet nine's existence or that the existence of planet nine would explain these really weird elongated orbits of extreme trans-Neptunian objects that come far closer to the sun on their closest approach, and then they fling way, 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 way out there in these highly elliptical orbits. And we're seeing this exoplanet do that exact same thing with this other debris disk in this other solar system. So it's fascinating that you can look out at other star systems to say, hey, that's what we think happened with planet nine. So Chris, this is this is all very exciting stuff um, from observations we're making now. What's what's on the horizon? What kind of missions are, are coming online in the near future uh, that are going to help better our understanding of these things? Yeah. So there's one uh, upcoming mission called Pandora. It's part of a newly, it's a newly announced mission that's part of NASA's Pioneers program. Uh, it's a really cool exoplanet mission. It's going to go up and study a total of 20 different stars that are known to contain 39 different exoplanets. And it's going to look at them in both the visible and infrared spectrums, basically trying to understand what those exoplanets' atmospheres are made of and how they're operating and could they potentially be habitable worlds. Um, so that's a really, really cool one. The, 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 the big one, though, that, that will really have a huge impact on our understanding of exoplanets and exosolar systems is the James Webb Space Telescope. It's a companion to the Hubble Space Telescope. It is not a successor to Hubble because it's not primarily looking in the optical range. It's looking in the ranges that we can't see with our own eyes, but that can really give us a lot of information like what are exoplanet atmospheres made of? How are these solar systems being formed? What's the composition of the debris disk that exoplanets are being formed on. James Webb can really dig down into some of those answers and help us understand what we're seeing in these other solar systems. So that that's a really, really big one coming up. Well, we've been speaking with Chris Gebhardt. He's the assistant managing editor at nasaspaceflight.com. Chris, always great to chat with you. Thank you, Brendan. My pleasure. That's going to do it for this week's show. Stay connected online. Visit wmfe.org space or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at AWTY space. 
or on Facebook, just search for Are We There Yet Podcast, or shoot me an email, yet at wmfe.org. And if you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Subscribe to NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Kirk Churchill. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.